From KIOS in Omaha, you're listening to Riverside Chats. I'm Tom Noblock, and today I'm talking with Jody Kiesner, author of the new memoir, Under My Bed. I think people read memoir because they are seeking windows into experiences or life circumstances that are different from theirs. And they connect with that memoirist because the writer is being vulnerable and being honest. And that's what makes the story relatable, even if it's an experience you, the reader, have never had. Kiesner discusses the popularity of memoirs, what drew her to the form, and the long road to her first book's publication. Stay tuned for the conversation after this break. We have a lot of hours of content here on Riverside Chats now. Our backlog has over 100 episodes. We're expanding into live events, and we have an exciting future for the show that we hope to be able to get to you. To make the show as good as it can be and to continue to give you the kinds of conversations that you listen for, the reason why you subscribed in the first place, to hear coverage of arts, ideas, politics, whatever it is that brings you here every time, please consider becoming a supporter of the show by making a sustaining monthly donation of $1, $5, whatever you can afford, and really whatever you think the show is worth, which may be a zero, in which case, ouch. But okay, if you are interested in becoming a supporter, please look in the podcast notes. There should be a link in there that you can find that gives you all the information you need. Otherwise, thank you for considering supporting the show, and more more importantly, thank you for listening. Welcome to Riverside Chats. I'm Tom Noblock. Jody Kiesner's new memoir, Under My Bed, is an exploration of anxiety, control, fear, and rituals. Kiesner teaches at the University of Nebraska at Omaha and is from rural Nebraska, which sets the stage for her exploration of the central ritual of the book, checking under her bed to make sure she's safe. Today we're talking about anxiety, memoirs, self-exploration, and writing. Under My Bed is available now wherever you get books, and here is our conversation. I figure we can just kind of start with the awkward reality that this first segment here is being re-recorded after we recorded an interview because I threw out a phrase very early on that I was kind of hoping would open up the conversation, but I think it was poorly chosen and had some connotations that I was kind of blasé about. And uh, the phrase that I was using was self-exploitation in relation to memoir, which just a little bit of background of where I'm coming from with that word, and maybe we can kind of start there, is on this show, for example, I feel like I'm kind of always exploiting my curiosity and my frustrations about things in a way that I hope can create an hour of insightful, entertaining content with appeal that goes beyond just a conversation that I might have privately. What I'm interested in in terms of memoir is I think there's something interesting about the way that we are kind of pressured to commodify ourselves and elements of ourselves, whether it's trauma or those dark things within us. But then we are able to make it into interesting art or an interesting hour of radio. But I think oftentimes memoirs like yours or any of the big pieces of creative nonfiction, they're able to kind of transcend just that element of what we think of as content and become something more interesting and with depth. So like, how, how do you navigate that? Okay, well, first I, I do have a confession. I have a day job you know, as a professor, which I love and which pays me. And most of the writers I know have day jobs. So I'm not writing 
for clicks or to commodify my experience. I'm writing because I believe I have something valuable to say. And I think memoirists are just trying to make sense of this big, wide, messy world. I've never felt pressure to mine trauma. I had a good writing mentor who used to say that the worst things that have happened to you don't necessarily make for the best writing. If we want to write about those worst things, we absolutely should. But as a writer, I have control over what I write about. And when self-exploitive has been used to describe memoirs in the past, it's been most often used negatively. And the term has been loved at women in particular who write memoir and are honest about trauma in their lives. And like right around the time I graduated college, it was late 90s, James Wolcott wrote this piece for Vanity Fair, which became quite famous, Me, Myself, and I. And he criticized mostly female memoirists for writing about their personal lives and trauma, while simultaneously he praised a male memoirist who was writing about his suicide attempt and a nervous breakdown. And so, unfortunately, from critics at the time, the message was like, if you write about trauma and you're a man, it's art. But if you write about it as a woman, it's confessional or self-exploitive. And I know you were not coming from that place, but I have carried that history you know, with me um, that really made an impact on me in the late 90s when I was just finishing my first degree. And after our first interview, I really sat with that and thought about a new writer of memoir, maybe my own students, you know, feeling discouraged. And I think people read memoir because they are seeking windows into experiences or life circumstances that are different from theirs. And they connect with that memoirist because the writer is being vulnerable and being honest and that's what makes the story relatable, even if it's an experience you, the reader, have never had. When I think about this in terms of my own book, my reader might not be a woman and have the experience I've had navigating this world in a female body, but they can relate to my experience of being overpowered by fear and desiring control over it. Or maybe my reader wants insight into the experiences of the women that they love in their lives. And I hope that writing about my own fears and being vulnerable in the way I have reduces the stigma that surrounds some of the topics I explore. I think that's, you know, a powerful aspect of memoir writing. Is there an element of memoir that is more authentic? Like when you're trying to express your vulnerabilities or what insights can be drawn from it, or even just to dramatize them and draw the tension out from them, Because memoir is different than – at least it's at face value different than like if you write a song or if you write a poem or write a piece of fiction that probably still has a lot of elements of you. It's probably still drawing on you and your experiences in a similar way. So I mean I guess what what is it that draws you to memoir in general as as the way to express the the parts of you that you want to share or contextualize or dramatize? Well, that is a great question. I mean – I have written fiction. You have never read it because it wasn't any good. So I have explored other genres and memoir was the genre that excited me. 
um, finding out how my personal experience connected to other people. And, you know, memoirists are always chasing this larger universal truth. But I'd also say um, the things that make fiction good and poetry good and screenwriting good are the things that also make create, you know, creative nonfiction or memoir good. So those genre conventions, so those storytelling techniques are totally the same in creative nonfiction. Um, and there, and there, you know, I have a dozens of books worth of material from my life that is private and that I will never share with a public audience. And I assume that that's true of all memoir writers that we have boundaries over what we'll write. Memoir was what inspired me when I was very young. My grandmother gave me Maya Angelou's I Know Why the Caged Bird Sings. That was one of the first memoirs I ever read. And knowing that this was based in fact in, you know, capital T truth. I, I suppose it inspired me and in, engaged my mind in a way just a little bit differently than fiction had. So that is probably one of the reasons I pursued it. And memoirs help us to make sense out of things that really happen. I think of Joanne Beard's essay, The Fourth State of Matter, where she writes about a school shooting and helps readers make sense of this incredible tragedy in a way that maybe readers don't, they connect to fiction, but because it's not capital T true based in fact, maybe it has for some readers a different impression. For me, I needed the fact-based writing. I imagine when you were first getting into memoir, uh, you probably didn't anticipate the memoir boom, right? There's uh, People are very interested in it. It's a very big genre and has been, uh, you know, what, in the last decade or so? Why, why do you think culturally people are moving toward memoir as opposed to, like, uh, you know, some other, you know, I, I guess it, I'm sure they're still into all the other ones as well, but memoir is kind of having a moment now, isn't it? So that's an interesting question, too, because I do think the, the publishing industry and readers are kind of fickle. So we fall in and out of love with genres. And from my understanding, it's fiction writers who are still leading the pack. But I know what you mean about the public's interest in memoir writing. And I, I think it's similar to, to what I said is we're looking for writers who can help us make sense of some of these larger issues that we're experiencing in our own lives right now. So one of the books that I'm look for, looking forward to reading is about maternal brain changes, the neuroscience behind what's happening to the brain during pregnancy. This book isn't released yet, but I know from reading about it that the writer interweaves her own personal experience with the research she's done and the scientific research she's done. So that's appealing to me because I, I want I want the facts, and I think readers are interested in that. They're interested in knowing that this really happened and that this could apply to my real life, to my experiences that I'm having. And memoir opens windows into other cultures, other races, other genders, other ways of being, other life experiences, and, and, and people are interested in that. Yeah, I almost want to say it, it's it, it's encouraging that people are drawn to the authenticity of the genre. But it's it's funny to say that at the same time is 
culturally in terms of like politics and in terms of some of the the popular art that's out there, popular entertainment, it feels like that. I don't know how you square the fact that we're in like a, both a post-truth moment and also one where authenticity is being appreciated in wide numbers, right? Yeah, that's interesting contradiction. And I guess uh, most of the memoirs I read are not, they are political. I mean, the personal is political, so they're all political. So I don't know if I've seen that kind of political rejection of truth and facts seeping into what's happening with memoirs because I kind of exist in this uh, literary community, which tends to align with the same sort of political beliefs. Um, I'm not saying whether or not that's good or bad, but yeah, I don't know if I've, I've seen that seep into um, memoir reading into our audience as much. Do you feel like there's a strong division between art and content? And if so, what is it? I think the two have a symbiotic relationship. Good storytelling is good storytelling is good storytelling, although there is certainly a distinction between memoir writing and, let's say, journaling or diary writing. But my opinion is that we should never judge the content because too often that's been used um, to silence and shame, especially groups that have already been marginalized, but we should absolutely judge the artfulness of a story, if that makes sense. We just shouldn't judge the content, the raw material of choices that have already been made in someone's life. If you're just joining us, I'm talking with Jody Kiesner, author of the new memoir, Under My Bed. What unusual rituals do you have? Join the conversation on social media or call in with a brief voicemail to 402-881-0089, which we may play in one of our upcoming shows. Yeah, it's interesting to me uh, that a lot of that sort of vulnerability of the genre, it seems like for a long time that was funneled through fiction or poetry or some kind of other form that fictionalized it a little bit. And it's like now, I don't know, I don't know what changed, but it's like there you don't need that layer of artifice so much. Audiences are more receptive to something that feels very real, almost uh, like uncomfortably real at times. Why, why, why do you think that is? Oh, and I also think it's interesting, I'm, I'm kind of sidestepping a little bit, I'll come back. I think it's really interesting that audiences are also really angry if they find out that something that is labeled as memoir um, or as nonfiction is then later discovered to be not as truthful, mm-hmm. you know? Um, so they really want that authentic story. The public's interest in memoir has you know, ebbed and flowed over the years. So, I mean, essays have been written for, you know, hundreds of years um, going back to Montaigne, but, you know, 500 years ago. So we've always been interested in true stories. I think the publishing world has more, the publishing industry has more to do with that and where they're putting their marketing and, and promotion and, where they're putting their their money, um, it, you know, really it just it goes back to um, what I've already said, which is I think that people really want the real story. They want to know what is happening in people's homes and people's lives, and they want it to be authentic. They want that sense that it's fact-based and doesn't have that extra layer to it. Though I've also seen an argument for a genre that doesn't identify itself 
It could be fiction. It could be autobiographical fiction. It could be nonfiction. You know, that there's some truth at the heart of any story. In your process, are you consciously aware of the message of what you're writing as you construct an essay or a book? No. You know, that comes to me much later in the writing process. At first, I'm just getting down the details in my personal experience. And I have to write through many, many drafts. And I'm asking myself, okay, this this happened to me. It matters to me. But why should it matter to anyone else? Like, where where is the message? And sometimes I have to do a lot of research to figure out what it is I'm trying to say. A lot of my essays have um, research braided throughout them. But that is something that happens for me, um, multiple drafts into the writing. Well, and so, I mean, when, when you first became aware of this as a, as a medium, as a way to sort of express what you're going through. I wonder what were some of the essays or memoirs or what were you reading that sort of awakened your love for the genre and your thought that maybe you had something that you could bring to it? Yeah, great question. I was 29 years old when I first heard the term creative nonfiction. So my training was in American literature, English literature. You know, I was taught how to critically analyze existing work and and how to favor analytical thinking over emotional thinking. So I came to creative nonfiction kind of later in life. And some of those books I was first introduced to that really turned me on to the genre, um, let's see, Maxine Hong Kingston, Tobias Wolf, This Boy's Life, Mary Carr, Catherine Harrison, Joanne Beard, and those are the books I was reading. I did my master's program at, at UNO, and those were the books I was reading in a class um, taught by John T. Price. It was called Modern Familiar Essay, and I'd never heard of creative nonfiction. I'd never heard Modern Familiar Essay before, but those were the books that really turned me on to the genre, and I just wanted to read as many memoirs as I could. And those were, um, I was reading kind of traditional memoirs in the beginning. I'm talking with Jody Kiesner, author of the new memoir, Under My Bed, which is available now wherever you get books. Let us know what you think. Follow Riverside Chats on Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram. Stay tuned for the rest of the conversation after this break. Welcome back to Riverside Chats. I'm Tom Noblock. Check out the backlog of Riverside Chats episodes wherever you get podcasts. Subscribe on your favorite app, and please, while you're there, leave us a review. Today I'm talking with Jody Kiesner, author of the new memoir, Under My Bed, which is available now wherever you get books. Here is the rest of our conversation. 
Do you remember when you switched gears over to creative nonfiction? I assume at some point during the MFA, there was a lot of trial and error of writing things that maybe weren't quite working or you're kind of figuring out even what you wanted to write. Do you remember what the first essay that you wrote was that you were actually proud of where you felt like, all right, this is me? I do. And and you're right about the trial and error because the my first year, everything I wrote was really terrible. I It took me a long time to learn how to write creative nonfiction well. And the first piece that I was proud of, which was more of a, a journalism piece, was this essay called Moresums. And I was investigating non-monogamy and I was living in Kalamazoo, Michigan and I had I met with some local swingers and interviewed them and did a lot of research read Gay Talese's um, Thy Neighbor's Wife and incorporated that in the essay and the impetus for writing the essay was that um, I had gotten engaged (laughs) and so I was questioning um a lifelong commitment, you know, and, and how many marriages did that actually work out? And yeah, I was proud of that piece, but it, it, it was framed with my personal story, but I really wasn't centered in the story. So I still was sort of on the boundaries of what I was writing. Yeah, well, I imagine being married, getting married, and then having uh, your partner show up in what you write, especially when it is going to be vulnerable like under my bed gets, that's got to be sort of a difficult negotiation of comfort levels, right? Yes, and my husband has read everything that I've written that includes him, you know, and he's been fine with it. And sometimes he edits things here and there. But he's been very generous, you know, very gracious about appearing in what I write. And not everybody feels that way. Um, in that piece, that, that first essay I was proud of, Morsums, I wrote about what I thought was an inconsequential moment I'd had in high school at a friend's house. And the friend saw the piece because it was published and someone had shared it on social media. I, I didn't think there was any way she would you know ever find it. And I didn't use her name, but I used her nickname and she was really upset. She thought I had portrayed an experience we had had in high school that didn't represent who she was now. Um, yes, so I, I have learned a lot about considering the people that appear in my work. It's interesting when I think about your early piece going back to high school to then this first piece that you were proud of, and you're talking about a lot of this experience of uh, being a woman, of trying to sort of convey some of that, especially to men. And I've had this thought while reading under my bed as well, that it's difficult for men to understand and fully empathize with the anxieties of being a woman because we don't live that way, right? So in your book, I thought your book, and it sounds like a lot of your writing, or at least some of the major milestones, have been kind of an attempt to explain things to men that they don't inherently see. I mean, is that fair to say is uh, something like maybe you're trying to explain uh, your brain and your thoughts and your feelings to confused men? Has that been a recurring issue for you? Well, that's interesting. I've never thought of my audience as confused men. And I really didn't make that connection to my earlier work 
and to this book until you just said that. So that was really insightful. Absolutely with this book, I wanted to write about the female experience. I wanted to explore, you know, fear as it intersects with the female body and motherhood um, and shed some light on aspects of that experience that yes, A, um, men might not have recognized, but I also wanted to connect with other women and say, hey, these fears are normal. So many of us experience them and they're, they're actually grounded in, uh, you know, science and our culture and our families and trauma that we've experienced. You know, they're not just it's not just a case of women being hysterical, right? Like these fears have real reasons. And so did that come out of essays that you had already been writing and wanted to compile? Or was this idea for the book of essays about that something that grew sort of naturally and then you started knowing it was going to be a book of a collection of essays? After I wrote the, so I wrote the first essay, which is the first chapter and also the title under my bed where I was confronting the obsessive compulsive behavior I had of checking when I got home and I lived alone of, of checking behind furniture and whipping back the shower curtain and getting down on my hands and knees and looking under my bed. Um, so the book started with that essay and I thought, well, well, this is kind of an interesting, you know, investigation of fears that are unique to women. And I, and I was really curious about um, other fears that are unique to women. I was a, I was a mother at the time that I was first writing the book of a um, young daughter. So I was new to motherhood and there's so, you know, the pressures of motherhood are enormous and so, the, so then I wrote the essay about my fear of keeping my daughter alive, which is so common. A lot of women experience this. And it just grew from that. And after a while of writing about fear, I wanted to write about, you know, the flip side of fear. I wanted to write more about love and curiosity and hope. And, and the book kind of progressed that way. Yeah, I mean, it's all sort of bundled through anxieties, which relate to all these other feelings and experiences. And so, I mean, I, I, look, I, I'm, I'm a person who uh, has I'm sort of anxious as like my natural state. It's uh, not always easy for me to relax. So I, I thought it was sort of easy to understand where a lot of it was coming from and to sort of understand, okay, so it's a book kind of about this mentality of being an anxious person, processing a lot of difficult ideas, uh, as well as just processing your life in general. But I imagine that's a tricky tonal decision you have to make when you're trying to write about a feeling that is kind of fundamentally negative that people don't want to experience necessarily, but to make that simultaneously relatable and entertaining on just the level of, I want to read this book. I want to keep reading it. It's not making me feel, you know, too much of these negative thoughts. So I want to put it down. Right. So like, how did you figure out what would be the way that the reader would be able to identify, but not be turned off by some of the negative ideas? Wow. That's a great question. A lot to unpack. I am by nature an optimistic person. So even though I have these anxieties, I am always hopeful 
and believe, you know, at, at my core that things are going to turn out okay. And in, in many of those essays, although I start from this, not all of them end in a hopeful place, but most of them end in a hopeful place. So even though I'm starting with, you know, an exploration of a particular fear or anxiety or hardship or trauma, um, ultimately it's about growth. I think naming and confronting our fears is empowering, empowering, it's liberating, it helps us to become a more authentic self. Um, and so that comes through in the book, I hope, so that tonally, um, as you said, it's still an enjoyable read and it's not a downer. You know, there are some essays in the book that end on a more realistic note. So they maybe aren't as uplifting, but they're contemplative. And that's a good headspace for readers to be in too. Like not everything is going to end happily ever after. So I, I think that kind of experience can be really enjoyable too. I mean, we do enjoy experiencing kind of, you know, the underbelly of human emotions and experiences too. So reading about fear can be fun. <laughs> yeah, I actually, I love the part where you do engage with your own relationship with horror movies and horror media because I, I'm somebody who, I, ever since I was young, I gravitated toward those. Like I would love to read horror books, watch horror movies. And I don't know, there's something about like funneling that negative energy and that anxiety through entertainment almost. Uh, it was a way to sort of dull it for me. What You had kind of this profound relationship. It sounds like uh, horror really impacted you fairly profoundly, right? Yes, I was obsessed. It's probably probably an understatement. I watched so many horror movies during my high school years. That's what we did. Um, we all got together and we watched Nightmare on Elm Street and Friday the 13th and Halloween. And so that horror had a big impact on my adolescent, adolescent years. And then in graduate school, I, I had some opportunity to study the intellectual side of horror movies. Um, and, and horror movies do provide us this safe space to experience all these emotions that we're often taught to suppress. So we get to be afraid, we get to be angry, we get to feel shame, we get to experience all these things in this, in this safe way. Um, and it can be pleasurable to be to be recreationally you know terrified and i also think horror movies you know they're ripe um with metaphor for exploring all kinds of things so horror movies are never really just about the horror on the screen they're about much larger issues they're about racism they're about toxic masculinity they're about the patriarchy they're about all these large issues they're about motherhood. Yeah, I mean, so people people look down on that sometimes, though, right? This elevated horror idea. They feel like, ah, oh, it's not a real horror movie. Like uh, my fiance will ask, is this one of those metaphor horror movies? Uh, which like, <laughs> I get where you're coming from there. But, I mean, yeah, I think to, to be engaged, right, you sort of have to latch on to something that does bother you, right? That's kind of the, the gist of the whole genre. Um, what, are, what are horror movies that speak to you now? I know you talk about the formative ones in the book. 
oh, you know, and, and the movies of my youth, the horror movies of my youth, I would never watch again. I do not like, I don't enjoy body horror anymore. So I'm more interested in psychological horror. Um, gosh, but I haven't watched, honestly, I haven't watched a horror movie in a long time. I watched The Witch. I, I saw Jordan Peele's, you know, Get Out. I love his movies. And I do think it's highbrow horror, not to mm. sound no, pretentious, but I do think psychological horror offers uh, offers that experience. But But even going back to the horror movies of my youth and something like, you know, Friday the 13th, there's been so much written about what these horror movies have essentially been doing, like the, the message in all of them, like reinforcing kind of conservative, heteronormative relationships, punishing people who had promiscuous sex, you know, um, reinforcing certain gender roles. Like, it's really fascinating to look at horror to see what is really being examined well, I, I, like you kind of already said, there, there's something almost comforting in getting into a fictionalized, controlled space of horror through media. Because, you know, like when if you're an anxious person and you think about the real world, there are a lot of real threats out there, whether they're, you know, there's the very immediate threats that might be harm or something like that. But also they're just like looming existential threats of like climate change or now we're all talking about nuclear war again. So, I mean, right. it, it, it can be difficult navigating anxiety in that sense because – even if you can abstractly talk about where anxiety comes from or what the roots of it are, it's still pretty easy to justify getting overwhelmed and debilitated, isn't it? Like, how, how do you balance that? Oh, I think that human beings have an ama- amazing capacity for resilience. So we all consume too much real horror on a daily basis. I mean, you just named a few things that are going on. I have young children, so... I'm always concerned with with school shootings, um, making headlines now, systemic, you know, sexual abuse in in women's soccer. I mean, there's real horror all around us every day. And and that's the beauty of human beings is that we can consume all that, choose to be hopeful and, and go about our ordinary, you know, lives. What I hope is that we choose not to be complacent that was another point of my book i really hope the writing brings awareness um to the female experience to the female body and also that it increases awareness and people are choosing not to be complacent about some of these things if you're just joining us i'm talking with jody kiesner author of the new memoir under my bed what do you think of the memoir boom? Do you like memoirs? What draws you to the form? Join the conversation on social media or call in with a brief voicemail to 402-881-0089, which we may feature in one of our upcoming shows. So you mentioned in the book that women are more likely than men to develop anxiety disorders. Why, why is that? Well, there's a lot of theories into that, and I am not a scientist. I, I do use basic science in my book, but... Most of what I'm exploring is grounded in my personal experience. Some of the theories say it has to do with hormones and hormonal changes. Um, Also, for mothers during pregnancy, you know, neurobiologists have discovered that 
the brain changes that occur during pregnancy are so profound, and that's their word, not mine, um, that they liken it to brain remodeling. We're just starting to learn more about what really happens to the brain during pregnancy, but something that we do know is um, the amygdala changes in size, and that's the part of our brain that's responsible for emotion regulation. And this is why so many new mothers are so hypervigilant and, and anxious. And of course, that would have been useful centuries ago when we all slept on the ground in caves. Um, it's probably less useful now, but we, we still have this, mothers still have this anxiety and hypervigilance after pregnancy. Many of us do. So, so those are some of the theories. Also, um, you know, you have to look at the female experience. Women grow up being surrounded by images of violence against women. Um, you know, it's in our TV shows, it's in our horror movies, it's on the news. The, the statistics alone are staggering. 80% of women will be sexually harassed. Um, you know, I mentioned what's happening in women's soccer. It's, it's truly systemic. So we grow up negotiating, not every day, but at some point in our lives, we are negotiating the threat of violence from men. We're told not to walk, not to jog alone. You know, there was a, a jogger who was abducted and murdered um, last month. We're told not to walk alone to our cars or carry mace, you know, use the buddy system in college, um, lock your doors, lock your car door. You know, we grow up with this. So of course there's going to be some residual anxiety from that. So to further be sort of that confused man that you keep explaining things to, um, I, I, that's interesting that you mentioned that we are just starting to understand what happens to a woman's brain during pregnancy. You know, like just, I, I understand that there are social factors at play there, but sometimes I, I just, like my brain goes to like, we're talking about colonizing Mars, but we still can't figure out what happens to women's brains during pregnancy. And it's just, the priorities sometimes are uh, just yes. hard to wrap your mind around, I guess. But like, wh why is it that uh, we are just now figuring out what's going on with women's brains during pregnancy, for example? Well, I can tell you what my doctor friends have told me that most of the research we've done on the human body has been on the male body. Just historically, it's always been done on the male body. And so less, less attention has been paid. I mean, there's also so much we don't know about menopause. You know, it was a, it's still kind of a taboo subject, but it's affecting more than half of the country. Like, why don't we understand? how it's affecting the female body. So, and that's about the extent of my knowledge on why we don't know more about it. Um, I think it also has to do with funding. Yeah, I mean, so it, it, it's one of those things where, again, it's just sort of like, I wonder if works like your book can be actually helpful in the sense that Sometimes I don't know that men know what they shouldn't be or what they should be curious about or what they obviously are not prioritizing, but that maybe matters. So, I mean, do you see some of what you write as a way to sort of bring some of that awareness in addition to relating to women going through these same concerns? Well, that would be wonderful. I can tell you a lot of my early reviewers and readers 
were women. So maybe I need to work harder on uh, reaching male readers. But I know that some of the experiences I've had, and for instance, my experience of feeling unsafe when I was home alone and living in my 20s and where I felt like I had to do these checks. And um, I, I, I traced that, you know, I traced those origin stories to, to many different experiences in my life. But I wrote that chapter and then, you know, published the book. And then I read Melissa Phoebos, Melissa Phoebos's book, Girlhood. And in her book, she has this chapter about her experience with a peeping Tom and how she taped her drapes to the wall and how she became afraid to live alone. And then a month or so after that, I saw this tweet where a woman was asking how people made themselves feel safe when they were home alone. And there were about a hundred responses. Most of them were women. And the answers ranged from sleeping with a really big dog to having a knife under a pillow, to barring doors with furniture. And I, and I realized it's really a common female experience and not just female. I mean, certainly um, people of color, indigenous people, trans folk, they all, they all live with these fears too. Um, so I know I'm reaching women. I, I don't know if I've been reaching as many men with my book. Well, yeah. What gets men to read uh, these types of books is, is maybe an interesting question too, right? Like, do men tend to uh, are are men as interested in memoirs or something? I have no idea about, but I do know there seems to be a little bit of hesitancy for a lot of men to consume uh, female centric art, uh, female centric experiences. Sort of something like eh, it just seems less interesting. It's like this is written for women because it's about women. Is that something that you've ever had to uh, you know encounter or deal with? Well, sure, but a lot of men are writing memoir. And in fact, when I was introduced to memoir, I was reading a lot of men. And I remember reading Tobias Wolf's This Boy's Life and wondering, okay, where's this girl's life? You know, it's too bad that memoir is getting, gets a bad rap. When it's equated as being confessional or exploitive or whatever, then people want to sort of lump it in as a a woman's genre but that's simply not true when you look at the history of it a lot of early essayists were men and certainly some of our most well-known and well-paid memoir writers and essayists are men i think open-minded and curious men will read a book even if it seems to be a uniquely woman's experience. And certainly all of us have fears. You know, you, you mentioned your own anxieties. So not every essay in my book deals with an experience that is unique to women. Yeah, I mean, rituals in general, that doesn't seem to be particularly gendered. I mean, well, what is it about rituals that, uh, what, why are they soothing to an anxious mind? Oh, I, they provide a sense of safety and security it's it's the illusion of control if i do this ritual every night i'm controlling something i know what the outcome will be of course it's just an illusion because there's so much we can't control but it is temporarily soothing you know even as i was checking under my bed and looking in closets i knew how ridiculous it was i knew there wasn't really an intruder in my 
apartment waiting to chop me up into little pieces, but I was in a loop, so I had to do it. I had to complete the ritual in order to calm the anxiety. And you're right, we all have all kinds of rituals. I mean, I think about people have really specific bedtime rituals. And, and that was my bedtime ritual. The things that we do every night before we go to bed, you know, it might be getting the earplugs out of the drawer or um, setting your alarm clock or reading a chapter of a book. But people have really specific things they do to soothe the, their mind so they can rest. For some reason, one I like to do is reading horror books before I go to bed. And like, I don't, I don't know why I want to invite that anxiety in, but it's just like knowing that it's contained to whatever I'm reading and I can close it and then I can put it away. For some reason, that's a, that's a soothing ritual to me. Right. I mean, what a wonderful feeling if we could all just contain the horror of the world in a book and close it. And like Pandora's box, there it is. It's shut. Right, exactly. um, that would be amazing. Yeah, I try. It's again, that's my that's my illusion of, of something safe I can do that's helping. <laughs> um, well, so as far as how you choose, you chose to structure your book, it's not really like an origin story of trauma that leads to today. It does jump around. It has different focus. They're all sort of linked. But I wonder how you chose to organize the essays and what you think it means for sort of the arc uh, from part one to two to three. Well, I had each essay printed out stapled together and thrown all over my floor and I probably rearranged them a dozen times before I saw a kind of logic to them and the first part really does explore a lot of my childhood and adolescent experiences and if it explores motherhood it's in relationship to some of my childhood experiences and was me exploring origin stories. So what are the roots of this anxiety or fear? Like, where are the roots in my family, in, in, in my culture? Um, and then part two was where my, my interest in the scientific reasons really emerged. And I started to look to basic science. To, to try and discover um, you know, the, the rational reasons behind the fear, because I knew my fears weren't just ridiculous. I knew that they were, they were grounded in very real, very real reasons. So, and I, and I also looked at fear and love as it related to my family and part three I wanted to confront my fears. Um, it also progressed into fear of um, what happens to our bodies as we age. And so I was kind of growing up in the collection from childhood to motherhood to adulthood and my parents as they were aging. And that's the, that's the section, that third section where I, I also I also wanted to offer the reader hope. Well, and did you find that as you're able to sort of take these fears and anxieties and turn them into sort of these abstract concepts or turn them into something that maybe science can explain that, look, it's just a part of the evolutionary cycle. 
did that help? Did that dole any of them for you to intellectualize them? Or are they still uh, often as potent as they were when you first were experiencing them? Well, I don't check under my bed anymore. I haven't done that in years. I do think intellectualizing them, or at least understanding them, helps to calm them. Really, when you when you can name a fear, understand where it's coming from, the various you know places it's coming from, it loses its power. So a lot of the fears I wrote about in the book, I'm I'm no longer contending with. As I grow older, my parents grow older, my daughters grow older. You know, my fears have shape shifted it into some of the things that you already mentioned. Like I think more about climate change now than I think about the maternal brain or than I think about even some fears that I had for my daughters. They're older now, so I, so I don't worry anymore if I'm going to be able to keep them alive through the night. I would say my fears are more worldly now and less focused on my own little microcosm. Do you have a good ritual for uh, climate anxiety? I could use one. Oh, I don't. I recycle. <laughs> you know, I do my own little part, not enough. I read a lot about it, but I I haven't found a ritual. Maybe I need to go outside and gather up some pine cones or something. <laughs> well, what what rituals do you have now? Are there any? I walk almost every day. And that is a, if I don't walk or, or bike or hike or do something like that, then the stress definitely can take over. So yeah, I walk off my anxiety. I imagine the the book itself was therapeutic to sort of go through all of these feelings. Uh, do you feel like uh, did it end a certain like era of these types of concerns? So whatever you write next will look very different, or is, is this kind of a lane you want to continue to explore in future projects? No, I don't want to explore it any further. I've had my fill of fear. I, it's kind of like when you you're awake at 3 a.m. and you're thinking about everything you have to do the next day. So you go get a scrap of paper and you write it down. You make your 3 a.m. to-do list and now you can go back to sleep. That's sort of akin to what writing the book was. Once I got the fears down, I stopped obsessing over them a little bit. And I don't think writing the book itself is therapeutic though because writing is really hard. I mean, the process of writing is not therapeutic because those first drafts are always so terrible and you have to make yourself go back to the computer or wherever you, wherever you compose again and again and again. That to me does not feel therapeutic. The early drafts feel more like torture, but probably naming the fear and understanding it was therapeutic. So what do you, what do you write about these days? Hmm. I... I'm writing about relationships between mothers and daughters, the ways that we love each other, but also the ways that we fail each other. I'm really fascinated with mothers who run away, um, mothers who abandon their children in various capacities and why they might do that. But I'm also gonna look at that through the lens of adoption because I was adopted, my, my youngest is adopted, 
and I'm interested in that history of separating mothers and children, which is to say that I'm still working it out, <laughs> but those are some of the ideas that I'm interested in pursuing. And I had told myself this book is going to be a much happier book. And then I started writing about these darker things again. So we'll see, we'll see where it goes. All right. Well, so Under My Bed is out now wherever people want to get books. Where should people go if they want to check out whatever else you have coming out or want to, you know, just learn about you and your works in general? They can visit my website, which is www.jodykiesner.com. All right. Well, Jody, it was great to get a chance to read your book and to talk to you about things, to be the dumb guy you could explain things to, and to just get into it all. So thanks so much for being on the show today. Thanks for having me. It was a lot of fun. Riverside Chats is a production of KOS 91.5 FM, Omaha Public Radio. The show is produced and edited by Courtney Bierman. Our original music is written and performed by The Real Zebos. Our artwork is done by Ben Matukowicz. Remember, you can find the backlog of all of these conversations wherever you get podcasts. Subscribe today and please leave us a review. As always, thank you for listening. I'm Tom Noblock. Music